Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Welcome to this episode on the sacrament of marriage. Now, I am not going to lie, this has been one of the harder episodes that I've had to prepare, mainly because this topic today, it just, it can feel so emotionally fraught and so controversial, right? There are so many things that clash with what our current culture believes. And it's so easy to start just going down rabbit holes, trying to explain things. And then, you know, the whole episode blows out and it ends up going for four hours. And I didn't want to do that. So I tried to find a balance in this episode of like addressing all of the key points in the catechism without necessarily being able to exhaustively cover every topic or every question. Um, One thing that really helped as I was preparing this episode that I just kept coming back to was this quote from Pope Francis. And it's such a small quote, but I found it really helpful. He says, the Christian proclamation on the family is good news indeed. I think that's just really important to remember going into this episode that the church, you know, the church's teaching on marriage can be difficult and challenging and even painful for some people. But ultimately, the church isn't getting around like wagging her finger at people and being like, no, you're not allowed to get married. That's not what marriage is. Okay. Ultimately, The church has good news to share about sex and marriage and the family, okay? It's good news. The church is calling us in marriage to something so wonderful and so good. So that's something that I want to kind of try to keep coming back to in this episode, the beauty of marriage. Okay, so let's start by reading the Catholic Church's definition of marriage. So this is point 1601 of the Catechism, and it's a quote from the Code of Canon Law. It reads... The matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life is by its nature ordered towards the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. So, in other words, marriage is between a man and a woman, it's for life, and it's ordered towards children. (laughs) Now, some of you might hear that definition and be like, well, Caitlin, so much for good news. (laughs) Like that definition doesn't include me or it doesn't include my friend or someone I care about. And it might sound really restrictive or old fashioned or even like cruel or unfair. And it makes sense that that might be our sort of knee jerk reaction to that definition, because the standard definition of marriage today in our kind of contemporary, particularly Western secular world, is completely different to the Catholic Church's definition. So if you ask someone today how they would define marriage, they might say something along the lines of marriage is when two people love each other and they want to publicly declare that love for each other and to commit themselves to each other in a ceremony. That's a pretty sort of standard definition of marriage in many places around the world today. It's not about a man and a woman. It's not for life. It's not necessarily about babies. It's just about love and commitment between two people and not necessarily a lifelong commitment either. I mean, that would be great if it happens, but but it doesn't necessarily have to last for your whole life. Okay. Now, if marriage is just about love and commitment then it makes total sense that the Catholic Church's definition might seem unfair. Because let's think about it. 
any two people in the world can love each other and any two people can make a commitment to each other. So why would we exclude anyone from that? And it's easy to start thinking, you know, oh, maybe a hundred years ago or even like 60 years ago, the church's definition of marriage was accepted by most people. But times have changed. We have expanded the definition of marriage to include other kinds of relationships. So why is the church insisting on imposing this kind of archaic, restrictive definition of marriage on the world? Well, the problem here is that we are assuming that marriage is something that we actually can redefine, that it's just a purely man-made construct, and as such, it can be whatever we want it to be. Now, this assumption arises out of what we call nominalism. So nominalism, I think we might have touched on it before, it's a belief that things are what we call them. So words shape material reality. So I have a word like marriage or love or family, and then I get to decide how reality conforms to that word and not the other way around. It's kind of like if I had an empty house and then I get to decide who's going to live in it. Problem is that that's not how reality works. The labels that we use don't determine what things are. They can only describe what they are. And they can describe them correctly or incorrectly, but ultimately things remain what they are, regardless of what words we're using. It's like Juliet's timeless zinger, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, right? So for example, like right now, I have a mug of tea and a laptop sitting in front of me. Now those are two different things. And even if I started to use the same word to describe both of them, like I started calling both of them a mug, that wouldn't suddenly make them the same thing. And imagine if you saw me like pouring boiling tea all over my laptop and then trying to like lick it off the keyboard and being like, but it's a mug now. (laughs) You would think I was crazy. So labels don't decide reality. They simply describe reality. So when the Catholic Church uses this word marriage, she's not just like randomly deciding that this is what we think marriage is. She's simply describing an existing reality, right? A specific kind of relationship that exists in the world. And it's a relationship that will continue to exist regardless of what anyone says about it. And is also, and it's also a relationship that is fundamentally different to other kinds of human relationships. And even if we start to use the same word to describe those multiple kinds of relationships, they remain fundamentally different things. Okay, so what is this specific, unique kind of relationship that the church is referring to when she uses the word marriage. Well, obviously, there are many kinds of loving human relationships in the world, right? In fact, love is a fundamental aspect of all positive human relationships. Now, wherever love exists, we can see two common attributes, and they are unity and fruitfulness, Okay, let's unpack those two terms. So unity, when you love someone, you want to be united with them. You want to be close to them in some way. So Fulton Sheen talks about how a mother will press her child to her chest. Or she might say, I love him so much, I just want to eat him up. Or, you know, you think about what a hug is, right? Like if you give someone the biggest, squeeziest hug that you can, it's like you want to be as close to them as possible. 
And unity doesn't even have to be like a physical closeness. It might just be something like talking on the phone to someone or even, you know, looking at a photo of them. When we love someone, we find ways to feel close to the person that we love. When we love someone, we find ways to be or feel closer to that person. And then fruitfulness. Okay. All love bears fruit. Love is always manifested in some way. So we can think, for instance, of the love languages, right? Gifts and acts of service and physical affection, words of affirmation. The love between two people is always fruitful. And if it isn't, then it isn't love. So think about it. Like if someone told you that they loved you, but then they never actually did anything for you or they never said anything nice to you or they never gave you a gift or even like wished you a happy birthday you would probably start to rightly doubt that there is actually any love there. Okay, so unity and fruitfulness are attributes of all loving relationships. Now, there is one and only one kind of human relationship in which unity and fruitfulness occurs on a whole other level entirely. And that is in a sexual relationship between a man and a woman. So let's think about it. What happens when a man and a woman have sex? Well, first of all, they are united physically, chemically, and even spiritually. So on a physical level, like the the sexual organs of a man and a woman, not only complement each other, they actually complete each other. They need each other in order to carry out their primary reproductive function. So male and female bodies are like puzzle pieces. And then on a chemical level, the hormones that are released during sex create an emotional bond between the two people. And then on a spiritual level, like we've talked before about how as human beings, we are both body and soul. And those two things are intertwined inseparably. So when a male body and a female body are united, like those two jigsaw pieces, their souls also become united as well. So Pope John Paul II talks about this in an apostolic exhortation called Familiaris Consortio. He writes, conjugal love involves a totality in which all the elements of the person enter. It aims at a deeply personal unity, a unity that beyond union in one flesh leads to forming one heart and soul. So sex creates a union of two whole entire persons. It's literally the closest that you can get to another human being. That's why we talk about two people becoming one flesh. And then fruitfulness, right? I mean, this one's obvious. Like sex between a man and a woman is the only instance in the natural world where love between two people can create a whole other human person. And let's just think about that for a second. That's insane. Men and women have the power to create a human being. One of my favorite books is Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And I find it really interesting in that book that Victor Frankenstein is so obsessed with the idea of making a human being and bringing it to life. And I'm like, dude, people do that every day. You already have that power. And the fact that he's so obsessed and so in awe of this idea of bringing a human being to life, to me, that really puts it into perspective. What an incredible power God has given us. Like 
compare it to other animals, right? When animals procreate, a little baby animal is born and it has a physical body and like a bundle of instincts and it grows up to physical maturity and then it eventually dies and that's that. (laughs) But human beings, as we've discussed in past episodes, we have a spiritual, rational, eternal soul that will never die and that can reason and make decisions and know and love God for all eternity. That is incredible. My mum sometimes talks about how when we were little kids, she would sometimes watch us running around and talking and playing and interacting. And she'd just look at my dad and be like, we made them. (laughs) And he'd be like, man, it's insane. (laughs) And if we think about it, what is the only other example anywhere ever where the love between two persons creates a third person? The Trinity, right? God himself. God has given us a power that only he has. Like, not even the angels can do what we do. The human family is literally the most tangible echo of the life of the Trinity on earth. Now, when we take all of this into consideration, we can see why, I mean, first of all, sex between a man and a woman is different from all other loving human interactions, right? No other kind of relationship can unite two people in the same way. And no other kind of relationship has the power to create human life. And secondly, we can see why sex shouldn't be taken lightly. There is a kind of permanence to it by its very nature. Like if I crack an egg into a bowl of flour and then I mix those two ingredients together and they become one thing, I can't just then extract the egg and use it for something else, right? They are permanently one thing. So both Christopher West and Jason Evett talk a lot about how when you give yourself to someone else in the sexual act, you're making a promise with your body. You are saying, I unite myself completely and permanently to you. And if you do that, and then later on you try to sort of rip yourself away from that person that you've bonded yourself to, and then give yourself to someone else, that does real damage to us, even if we can't sort of sensibly feel it. It makes me think of Mr. Rochester in Jane Eyre when he's talking about that connection that he feels with Jane. And he says it's like there's this string between them tying their two hearts together. And if she were to leave him, then that cord of communion would snap and he would take to bleeding inwardly. And that's just him talking about an emotional connection. Like that's without even the added element of a sexual union on top of it. So aside from unity... Sex also brings with it the potential for a lifelong commitment to raising children. And Scott Hahn talks about the importance of this. He says how the family is the first society children are aware of and part of. This is the first community in which children are raised and will prepare them for participation in all the larger communities that they will inhabit for the rest of their lives. So in other words, parents are responsible not just for physically raising their children, making sure that they're like alive and well-fed. They're also responsible for their psychological, mental, spiritual and moral development. So in the sexual act, a man and a woman implicitly sign up to the possibility that they may become responsible for a human life that has a rational soul that will live forever. That is no small responsibility. It's huge. 
So taking all of this into account, it makes sense that the catechism talks about how the sexual act needs to occur within the context of what it calls a marriage covenant. In other words, the man and the woman need to have freely made a public, verbal, lifelong commitment to each other before they then physically express and affirm that commitment in the sexual act. In point 1627, the catechism says there has to be a human act by which the partners mutually give themselves to each other. I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband. So this is what marriage is. And we can return here to our original definition from the beginning of the episode. Marriage is when a man and a woman freely establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life that is ordered towards the procreation and education of offspring. This unique kind of human relationship involves permanence, total unity and openness to life. Now, we might hear all of this and sort of think, well, okay, maybe technically you're right. This is a unique kind of relationship, but there are a lot of other kinds of loving human relationships that look pretty similar to this one, even if they're not exactly the same, right? Like a union between two people who have been validly married before, or a union between two people of the same sex, or people who just don't want to have kids, but they're committed to each other for life. And all those relationships, I mean, we've got like two out of three, right? Like, are they so different that we can't also call them marriage? Well, the church would say, yes, <laughs> they are that different. <laughs> and without getting into the kind of mire of discussing the morality of each of those other kinds of relationships, for now, it's enough to say that they are different in a way that really matters because marriage isn't just one relationship among many okay it has its own specific elevated and incredible purpose in god's plan for humanity okay so to explain what i mean let's return to some of the ideas that we've been mapping out through really throughout this whole podcast series god the son jesus christ became a human being and offered up his own body in death on the cross, out of love for us. And then we, in return, when we accept those graces from God in baptism and we offer our whole selves back to him, we become united with him and we become part of the one body of Christ. And then the fruit of this union is the gift of everlasting life. So, here we can see this same dynamic of the lover and the beloved and this total fruitful union between them. The entire mystery of salvation is a nuptial mystery. It is, in the words of Peter Kraft, a marriage-like covenant. Peter Kraft writes that the ultimate aim of God's whole plan for creation and redemption of the whole Christian religion of our whole lives is a spiritual marriage with God. So as humans, we are all made to experience total union with God in heaven. The Vatican II document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, says that Christians should be drawn day by day into ever more perfect union with God and with each other so that finally 
God may be all in all. So this idea has been with us since the dawn of Christianity, that the meaning of our lives, the ultimate aim of all humanity and the fulfillment of the whole of salvation history is a kind of heavenly marriage. And as we've already said, human marriage is the only thing on this earth that mirrors that kind of union. That's why the catechism refers to the family as the domestic church. It's like a a, a microcosm of the church itself and then our ultimate destiny in heaven. And not only does marriage and the family mirror that union between all of us and God forever in heaven, it also points us toward and prepares us for that union. And this is particularly true of marriage in the new covenant, right? Following the death and resurrection of Christ. The Catechism in point 1601 talks about how marriage between baptized persons has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of a sacrament. Basically, what this means is that when two baptized people get married, they don't just enter into what we call a natural marriage. They also receive an outpouring of specific graces that help them to prepare for their union with God in heaven. It also helps to make their ongoing union on earth possible as well, because we all know that marriage is incredibly difficult, especially in this fallen, sinful world. So the Catechism in point 1608 says that to heal the wounds of sin, man and woman need the help of grace. And that's where the sacramental grace of marriage becomes so powerful and so helpful. So all of this is to say that when we try to equate marriage with other kinds of human relationships, we end up undermining, diminishing and becoming desensitized to the power and purpose of marriage. We treat it as just a way for, you know, two people who love each other to gain a kind of mutual self-satisfaction or a kind of earthly material happiness, which is so far from being the ultimate point of marriage. Now, I am very aware that an explanation like this is probably not particularly helpful to non-Christians. So you might be listening to this thinking like, okay, that's all lovely, Caitlin. I get where you're coming from, but what am I going to say to my atheist friend, right? Like, sorry, but marriage is just between a man and a woman because it's actually an image of the nuptial union between Christ and his church. They're going to be like, you are weird and I don't care. (laughs) Well, Unfortunately, we don't have time to go into it now, but there is a really good book that I would recommend. It's by Scott Hahn, and it's called The First Society. And it's all about how the family is the fundamental unit of society and how if we don't get marriage and the family right, then basically everything else falls apart. So I really recommend reading that book if you're looking for an explanation of the importance of marriage that can be adapted to a more kind of secular audience. Now, a couple of questions or objections that might have popped into your mind mind at some point listening to all this stuff on marriage. First of all, we've said that marriage has to be open to life. So what about people who can't have kids? What if through no fault of your own, you're just infertile, you're just unable to have children? Is your marriage then invalid? Well, no, it isn't. Pope Paul VI in his encyclical Humana Vitae says that basically so long as each and every marital act retains its intrinsic relationship to the procreation of human life, then it is legitimate and valid. Okay, that's very wordy. Basically what he's saying is that 
even if you're infertile, you can still be open to life so long as you're engaging in a sexual act that is still intrinsically ordered towards the creation of new life, even if it doesn't result in new life in your specific case. And so long as you're not actively, artificially preventing conception, so you're not contracepting. Point 1654 of the Catechism says, Spouses to whom God has not granted children can nevertheless have a conjugal life full of meaning. Their marriage can radiate a fruitfulness of charity, of hospitality, and of sacrifice. Now, another question. We've said that marriage is for life. But what about situations where a marriage becomes toxic or even abusive and someone actually needs to leave for their own safety? Well, point 1649 of the Catechism says that there are some situations in which living together becomes practically impossible for a variety of reasons. In such cases, the church permits the physical separation of the couple and their living apart. The spouses do not cease to be husband and wife before God, and so are not free to contract a new union. Okay, there's a lot in there, so let's break that quote down. So basically it's saying that just because you are legitimately married to someone, that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to live in the same house with them if there is a legitimate reason for you to live apart. So, for instance, there are some situations where one of the spouses actually has to leave the family home for a period of time in order to find work somewhere. Or, as we've already said, there might be a situation where a marriage has become abusive or really toxic, like your spouse is consistently cheating on you or they've formed a debilitating addiction to pornography or something. And particularly in situations where there are children involved, it may very well be necessary in an instance like that for the spouses to physically separate. Now, if the couple is validly married, unfortunately, that can't be undone. In the same way that my parents will always be my parents, even if I have some kind of huge falling out with them. So separation doesn't mean that the spouses are now free to start a new relationship with someone else. And of course, ideally, reconciliation is the best outcome, but... Sometimes it isn't possible, particularly in cases of things like abuse. And it's really important to remember that that is okay. It is permitted by the church. Now, having said all of that, there are some situations where a couple can receive an annulment. So an annulment isn't like a Catholic divorce. It's not the church saying this marriage is over. It's the church saying this marriage never started. So what makes a marriage invalid? Well, the Catechism in point 1626 says that if consent is lacking, there is no marriage. Now, there are a few situations where consent might not be present. In fact, there are many situations where consent might not be present. And if you want to know more about it, it, it's all sort of written up in the Code of Canon Law. But just a few examples. The first and most obvious is, of course, if someone forces someone else to get married. Okay, no consent there, not a valid marriage. But another example might be that uh, if someone doesn't actually believe in one of the essential properties of marriage, so they don't accept that marriage is for life or that it needs to be open to children. Another example is if someone is experiencing some kind of mental or psychological illness or impediment that makes them fundamentally unable to actually consent. 
Now, figuring out whether or not a person has validly consented to marriage in the first place, that's a really tricky and delicate and and complex business. So for this reason, annulments are brought before an ecclesiastical tribunal that has been trained in canon law. And if it becomes clear that one or both of the spouses never validly consented to the marriage, then the marriage is declared null and both the parties are then free to enter into a marriage with someone else. Obviously, though, ideally, the church wants people to enter into a valid marriage. And that is why it's so important that couples receive adequate preparation for marriage. This is actually something that Pope Francis has been really strong on. He's talked a lot about it, that couples need to be well prepared for marriage. So, Any couple that wants to get married in the Catholic Church needs to receive marriage preparation classes. And these just cover those kind of fundamental basics of what marriage is, that it's lifelong, that it's open to life, etc. Another thing, if you want to enter into a sacramental marriage in the Catholic Church, another thing that's necessary is that both the man and the woman have to have been baptised. And that makes sense, right? Like these two people have to be in the state of grace in order to be able to receive those specific sacramental graces of marriage. Now, that doesn't mean that a Catholic can't marry a non-Catholic or even non-baptized person. They totally can, but they need to get the permission of the bishop first if they want to get married in the Catholic Church. Now, the reason for that is that basically the church needs to make sure that even if this person isn't baptized or isn't a Catholic, they still understand and agree to the Catholic idea of what a marriage is, that it's for life, that it's open to life, etc. And that they're happy to raise their children in the Catholic church. If a Catholic marries a non-baptized person, it won't be a sacramental marriage. It'll just be a natural marriage. But If the non-baptized person ever gets baptized, then both the husband and wife will immediately receive all of the graces of the sacrament of marriage as well. They don't need to do anything else to obtain those graces. That will immediately happen if the person is baptized. So we can think of it like all of the graces are there just waiting. It's just that there's a blockage. And once that blockage is removed, then they sort of get flooded into the marriage. Okay. Now, just before we wrap up, let's talk a little bit about how the sacrament of marriage is celebrated. So the kind of practical details of how the sacrament works. Here's a fun fact. Guess who the minister of the sacrament of marriage is. Contrary to what we might assume, it's actually not the priest. So point 1623 of the Catechism says that the spouses, as ministers of Christ's grace, mutually confer upon each other the sacrament of matrimony by expressing their consent before the church. So it's actually the couple who administer the sacrament. They are the ministers. The priest or deacon is simply a witness. And then we come to the matter and form of the sacrament. So... The matter of the sacrament is the mutual consent given by the couple, their promise to live together in a lifelong union as husband and wife. And then the form, the specific words spoken by the couple, that's their vows. So I take you to be my husband or I take you to be my wife. Or sometimes it's in the form of an I do. Okay, (laughs) 
I mean, with this topic, as I already said, there's just so much to cover and it's inevitable that we've left some stuff out, but that's kind of an overview of the sacrament of marriage. After we have done a kind of overview of the whole catechism, I want to go back and go a little bit deeper into some of the sort of smaller points that we didn't get to. So if you have any kind of residual questions or things that weren't addressed in this episode and you'd like to be addressed in the future, please feel free to let me know what they are in an email. Um, The email address is in the show notes and I will make a note of those topics for future reference. So we have now covered all seven sacraments. How good. In the next episode, we're going to wrap up this second section of the catechism by talking about sacramentals and funerals. Such fun. Um, Great. So I will look forward to talking to you again in two weeks. Have a great fortnight. Bye.